Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. All right. Hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning, man. Listen, I want to get into my sermon, but I also got some awesome stuff happening in our church. So let me tell you the awesome stuff and we'll get into it, man. Um, this morning, I'm excited to welcome our Mercy Northeast family. Uh, we love you guys. And for the first time ever, excited to welcome our Mercy Union County launch team who has begun meeting this morning. That's right. Praise God. Um, Y'all, we do this to reach people with the gospel, and God and His grace is uh, allowing these guys to get started. We're so excited. Not only that, we have five people getting baptized this morning here at Mercy Church. Praise God. Um, and a really cool thing, uh, during student camp for our middle and high school students, we had two students who gave their lives to the Lord uh, this past week at student camp. Y'all better celebrate for that right there. So good, y'all. The Lord is moving among us. Uh, as I was telling our church at our member meeting the other night, I get to hear a lot of what God is doing, and so I want to do a better job of just sharing it with you. The Lord is moving among us, all right? Well, if you got your Bible, make your way over to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 14. Today is really going to be part one of a little two-part sermon, uh, as you'll see in what's going to develop in the text. And we're beginning to land the plane in our journey through First and Second Samuel, and we have been in it for a minute. Uh, well, that's because there's a lot in there for us. So this week, we're going to try and get from chapter 14 all the way through chapter 16. And I got to tell you, there is no other way to say it other than today, we are going to see the consequences of sin. And if you've been following along with us, you might say, man, again? <laughs> it seems like David's story went from this epic saga with a brave hero to now like a season of the Jerry Springer show that we're watching. Uh, and if you're new with us and new to the Bible, the short summary is David was a hero, but where we are now, he let his power go to his head and he acted on his impulses and then his kids followed suit and now there's infighting in his home. And I say that because if you're new to the Bible, I want you to know the Bible, it's incredible and in how relatable it is written over a thousand years ago, right? And still there's family drama, abusive power, selfish cravings, ultimately hurt yourself and others. This could be a reality TV show today. And my point is just because the Bible is ancient doesn't mean it's outdated. It is incredibly relevant and speaks a great word of hope, especially to dysfunctional people like us. All right. Now, my and I say that my trap as your pastor that when I'm preaching these kind of chapters that we're going to be in, is that I think these serve a warning to us about the consequences of sin. My old pastor said this a lot about his preaching. It applies to me here. Because on the one hand, I want to show you the devastating consequences of sin so that those of you who are on the brink of it will turn away and you'll avoid great damage and destruction in your life. And as your pastor, I love you and I want that for you. But on the other hand, I want to give those of you in the middle of suffering and pain hope, 
hope that God's redemptive power really is strong enough to bring healing and restoration in your life. Because I recognize some of you come in here and you're hanging on by a thread. You've got the consequences of your sin that you're already dealing with. Some of you are hurting. It's not your fault at all. And you're trying to make sense of where God is in the middle of all this. And I want you to see God loves you. He's good and he can bring healing to broken things. So that's my goal. It's to both warn you against sin, but then encourage you with the hope of God's mercy. That's my goal every week, okay? And I feel like it's the theme of today as we look at the conflict between King David and his son, Absalom. I'm gonna go ahead and just give you the main point. This is one of those single point sermons, okay? Here it is. The consequences of sin are real, they are devastating, and yet there is hope in Jesus. The consequences of sin are real and they are devastating, and yet there is hope in Jesus. I'll go ahead and tell you, dads, listen, the storyline is pretty much a father's sin revisited in his son, and I want you to receive this as a cautionary tale to walk closely with the Lord and closely with your family. Like I said, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. So I'm going to do some storytelling and summarizing to walk us through it. And then I'll pause and show you, show it to you, because this is a very important context. If you're reading the whole book of 2 Samuel and you arrive at these chapters, you're not going to be surprised at all by the events that unfold here. In 2 Samuel 12, we saw David take advantage of Bathsheba, right? Well, the prophet Nathan confronts David. David repents and Nathan says, okay, you repented. God says you're not going to die, but the consequences of sin are real and devastating. And here they are. And this is what he said back in chapter 12. He said, first, verse 10, the sword is never going to leave your house. Secondly, verse 11, I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. This is a very strangely specific consequence. Verse 14, the son born to you will die. When the subsequent chapters, everything Nathan said to him comes to pass. We already saw that David's son born to Bathsheba died. The two other consequences are the ones we're looking at today. We open chapter 14 and Absalom, David's son, has been living in exile for three years. Three years. He fled after killing his older brother who was in line for the throne ahead of him. And he feared for his life and he fled. So chapter 14 opens with Joab, the commander of David's army, recognizing, look, David's been thinking about his estranged son. So he devises this little plan to get David to bring Absalom home because Israel needs its prince back and David needs his son. Now, his, here's his plan. This is the first few verses of chapter 14. He's going to hire an actress to fake a crisis that mimics the situation that David is in. But he didn't hire just any actress. He hires a wise, older, A-list actress. You need to be thinking Viola Davis as you hear this unfold, okay? So Viola Davis walks in and does her thing. Verse four, when the woman from Tekoa came to the king, she fell face down to the ground, paid homage and said, help me, your majesty. Verse five, what's the matter? The king asked her. Sadly, I'm a widow. My husband died, she said. Your servant had two sons. They were fighting in the field with no one to separate them. And one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant and said, hand over the one who killed his brother so we may put him to death for the life of the brother he murdered. We will eliminate the heir. They would extinguish my one remaining ember by not preserving my husband's name or posterity on earth. 
And the king told the woman, well, go home and I will issue a command on your behalf. David thinks, oh, I got a chance to do something really good here. I can help a widow in her distress. This is a good day as a king. But then Viola Davis, being as shrewd as she is, just flips it on him right here. Verse 13, the woman asked, why have you devised something similar against the people of God? When the king spoke as he did about this matter, he has pronounced his own guilt. The king has not brought back his own banished one. We will, as she's talking about the people of Israel, certainly die and be like water poured out on the ground, which can't be recovered. But God, <laughs> she invokes God. I'll tell you what God would do. God would not take away a life. He would devise plans so that the one banished from him does not remain banished. She's got him. All right. Well, at this point, David's on to her. So there's a pretty comical exchange that happens next between two of them. Verse 18, the king answered the woman, all right, look, I'm gonna ask you something and don't lie to me. Don't conceal it from me. Let the Lord, my king speak. The woman replied, the king asked, did Joab put you up to all this? I love it. Because he had, that's what he'd done. But even still, and even though David figures it out, it works. This little parable convinces David. So he brings Absalom back from exile, but, and this is very important, he brings him back, but he doesn't go and see him and he doesn't let Absalom come back into the palace. He lets him come back, but just into the city, not into the palace. He lets him come back, but not fully back. David misses his son, but he's still mad at his son. And right here is where he totally misses it as a dad. What Absalom needs is confrontation by his dad that leads to conflict resolution. And instead, David chooses to avoid him and avoid the conflict for two years. Dads, listen, your children need you to lock in and initiate the hard conversations. Don't wait on them to just happen. Y'all, one of David's biggest sins is his passivity. And we saw it with Tamar in the last chapter, and we're seeing it here. And this has always been a sin men have struggled with. Ever since Adam, the first man, avoided conflict with the snake in the garden and then blame shifted and threw the only woman on earth under the bus, men have been avoiding responsibility ever since. Avoiding the hard things that God calls them to. Look, Absalom was a bad dude in his own right, okay? I'm not absolving him at all. But just like David needed to step up when he learned his daughter was assaulted, he needed to step up again here and deal with this situation. So men, let me ask you, what are the hard things that you are avoiding right now? As you will see in this, things are not going to get better by David avoiding them. Y'all, personally, I don't like conflict, okay? For some guys, their personality style is, let's have a fight. That's not me. Now, I don't avoid it. I just don't go looking. My way of solving it is I want everybody to get along by understanding that I'm right. Okay? That's my conflict style. All right? It's not great. But I get it. And I don't want to belabor the point too much because I know it's not the main point of the whole two chapters, two or three chapters. But it is an example, y'all. Consequences of sin are real and devastating. David's passivity has real and devastating consequences on his family and even on the kingdom and yours will as well. So married men, what conversations has your wife been trying to have with you and you've been avoiding them? Dads, what conversations you, you need to have with your kids? You've been putting it off. Every man, what conversation with a friend, a coworker, a family member, 
What are the responsibilities God has put in front of you and you're avoiding them? What's the calling God has given you that you're avoiding? Maybe it's the calling to share the gospel, but you're worried about your reputation or what you might miss out on. Maybe men, maybe it's actually going to the mission field, leading your family to go there. Y'all, I gotta say, praise God for our sisters. Do you know our women outnumber our men three to one on the mission field right now? And in terms of single missionaries, women make up 80% of the single missionaries on the field right now. That's praise God for them, but God, this is a call to you to say, what are you avoiding that maybe God is calling you to take up and walk forward? Here's the way I'll summarize it. Men, is it possible that your sin problem isn't doing something God forbids you to do, but instead avoiding something God calls you to do? For two years, David avoids Absalom. He avoids him. Is God calling you to something and you're avoiding it? Let's keep going. While David avoids Absalom, Absalom kind of becomes the man in Israel. Okay, I'm going to go down to verse 25. No man in all of Israel was as handsome and highly praised as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head, he didn't have a single flaw. When he shaved his head, he shaved at the end of every year because his hair got so heavy for him, he had to shave it off. He would weigh the hair from his head because he was a prima donna and it would be five pounds according to the royal standard. Archaeologists have uncovered a picture of him. It is Thor, the son of Odin. Okay. (laughs) They have found this for him. (laughs) Here's Absalom, y'all. He's a angry boy trapped in a beautiful man's body. We can call him Abs for short, okay? And Abs had some serious problems, serious anger problems. Because y'all, I'll go ahead and tell you what happens if a son doesn't experience love from his dad. That desire for love mutates into anger and hatred towards his dad. Well, Absalom's trying to get an audience with his dad over the course of these years. But even not only does his dad not responding, even Joab, who's kind of like David's sort of not only leader of the army, but also kind of an admin assistant in David's world right now. David's not returning, oh, excuse me, Joab's not even returning his calls. So after Absalom gets ghosted a few times by Joab, Absalom decides, I got an idea. And he sets Joab's yard on fire. And what any psychologist will tell you is that's called lashing out, okay? He's trying to get attention. Kids do this in any number of ways, even grown kids. They disobey all of a sudden more than they do. They start dressing scandalously when they didn't. They spend insane amounts of time trying to achieve at a sport or something. What they're trying to do is get dad's attention and approval. Some of you better wake up because your fields, men, your fields are on fire right now. But the good news is, one main point today is, even if your field is on fire right now, there's hope in Jesus. So Joab goes to Absalom. He's like, all right, I'll pick up the call. You set my yard on fire. Why did you do that? And he says, I want to see my dad. Well, at the end of chapter 14, he gets to see his dad and it looks like they make up. Watch this. David summoned Absalom, who came to the king and paid homage with his face to the ground before him. And then the king kissed Absalom. Man, this looks like reunion. It looks good in the moment. If we're to end in chapter 14, it'd be like, ah, reconciliation. But as soon as you start chapter 15, you realize that it was too late for David and Absalom. Absalom's heart was turned against his dad, and this was part of angling to overthrow his dad. 
In fact, the way chapter 15 opens, Absalom stands outside of the city gate each morning. And what he does is he intercepts people who are coming to go to the king so that King David could settle their problems like Viola Davis did, right? Go in and the king will be the one to kind of judge things and make a judgment decision and kind of that's how part of the responsibilities for ruling. But Absalom would stop them at the city gate and he would say, listen, the king is too busy to hear your problems. He's too busy, doesn't have time for you. I hear you. I'm on your side. If only I had the power to help. If I could get the power to help you, everything would be okay in your life. Verse six, Absalom did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This intense betrayal, this is Absalom's sin. Remember I told you the main idea is the consequences of sin are real and devastating, yet there is hope. After four years of doing this, when the time is right, Absalom strikes. He forces David out. David has to flee. And after David flees, as a show of power, here's what chapter 16 records. He record, chapter 16 records Absalom, now the one in the palace, now the ruling king, going up on the roof, and on the roof of the palace, he sleeps with his father's wives up on the roof. Nathan's prophecy is coming true. But do you hear this? Absalom steals everything a man has and sleeps with his wives on a roof. Sound familiar? It's the same thing David did with Uriah. David's sin pattern has become his son's sin pattern. Listen to me. Sin has generational consequences. But yet there's hope in Jesus. I keep telling you, Old Testament stories have two meanings. One is to see yourself in the story and to either be motivated to be kind of like the main character or to see the main character as a tragic warning. In this case, multiple warnings. And we've been seeing warnings over the past couple of weeks. What you hear today about David and Absalom, it should shape how you live for all of us. And again, especially if you're a dad, consider this my belated Father's Day word to you. But there's a deeper, more primary meaning to these Old Testament stories than just motivation or warning. There's a meaning that gives us immense hope, so much so that it leads us to something that just modeling behavior could never give us. It leads us to a place of peace and joy and hope. This deeper meaning when we grasp it will actually warm our hearts and lead us to worship. Let me show you the deeper hope because I know by now you gotta be like, man, the awesome two book series is getting depressing. You're right. There's a point to that. See, our author is showing us that David is surely not the king God's people needed. There's no way it can be him. He seemed like he was. He seemed like the guy, especially that David and Goliath moment. And that's the guy. But the very clear reality is now we know he can't even take care of his own home, let alone a kingdom. Here's the deal. In chapter 15, as he is the end of chapter 15, he's leaving Jerusalem, fleeing his son who has betrayed him. He's defeated, lost his throne. He's on the run. And the author shows us a very important pause that David makes. Verse 30, David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered. He's walking barefoot. 
All the people with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they ascended. He climbs the Mount of Olives and weeps. This is the first time in scripture we hear about the Mount of Olives. Certainly won't be the last. The mountain overlooking Jerusalem is going to become very important in scripture. Because you see, on his way into Jerusalem, Jesus stops at the Mount of Olives and he weeps. Verse 41, as he approached, verse 41 of Luke 19, if you were to go and read this whole account, as he approached and saw the city, he stops there on the Mount of Olives and he weeps for it. See, David leaves Jerusalem weeping, powerless to save the people God had put in his care from the son who had betrayed him, powerless to save his son from the tragic demise that's going to come to him as a result of giving in to his unquenchable thirst for power. What we need to see as David walks away is that David is not the king or the father God's people needed. The greatest king the Old Testament has to offer. So much good that he did, and yet he falls short. Falls short as a dad, as a husband, as a king. And yet, even though sin has such real consequences for him, God still loves him. But he's not the king they needed or the king that we need. Because like it or not, y'all, we are all Absalom. Our lives are claimed by God as his kingdom, and yet we rebel against him, and we stand on the rooftop publicly, humiliating him, declaring we, not he, are in charge. And we're even worse. At least when Absalom rebelled, he rebelled against a flawed father. We rebel against a perfect heavenly father. But then Jesus looks at us as he comes into Jerusalem to claim it for himself. And he weeps in love for his rebellious children. I need you to hear this. God loves you. He loves you. Even as you have rebelled against him, and I have no way of knowing the depth of your rebellion. Whatever it is, it's going to be hard pressed to beat Absalom. And yet God loves you. Even as you think you have, some of you might think you have no need for him because you've got the power and ability to do life all on your own. You're at that spot. We're at the top of the palace right now, thumbing your nose at God. He loves you. When Absalom comes home, David refuses to see him. But listen to me, do you remember the story Jesus tells about the prodigal son? He says the father runs out to meet the son who had betrayed him and embraces him and welcomes him home. Jesus pauses and weeps over Jerusalem as he comes into danger to save them, as he comes to do what David could not. He is the true king that David is foreshadowing. The father David couldn't be because he's not just the victorious king. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. When he came into Jerusalem, he didn't conquer his enemies and ascend to a rooftop to humiliate them. Instead, he suffered humiliation and ascended to a cross, but he did so in strength, not in weakness. He went up there to serve instead of being served. And that's true strength. He sees rebels like you and I, whose punishment for sin is exile from God's kingdom and ultimately eternal death apart from God. And instead of issuing out punishment we deserve, he takes our place of abandonment on the cross saying, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies the death we deserve. And that friends is so important for us to sit in for just a second. It was out of his love his love for you that he died for your sins. Do you know that love? Maybe you heard about it before, but do you know it? Have you received it? 
have you been set free by? Because it is so powerful. This love can actually break the patterns, not just of the sin in your life, but patterns of generational sin. And it can give you hope as you face the very real consequences of sin in this life. Sin has consequences. It's important to hear and for you to understand. God offers you forgiveness from your sin in Christ. That does not mean you will not suffer the consequences of your sin in this world. Some of you are suffering the consequences of your sin. Some the sin of others. Some both. It's real. And yet the beautiful thing in David's story is that God was not done with him. He's not done with you. This had to feel like the end for David. Put yourself in, well, he wasn't wearing shoes. Put yourself in his feet for a second. He's walking away from the kingdom that he had built, that God had brought him into, given him this throne. He's walking away betrayed, powerless, empty, defeated, and God is not done with him. In fact, God in his kindness is going to bring David back home. We're going to see it next week. But even as he's leaving defeated, he's got this hope. See, he's weeping over Jerusalem because he's pausing on the Mount of Olives, but it's not the only thing he did. He didn't just pause and weep on the Mount of Olives. Out of his heart, out of that defeat, he wrote Psalm 3 as he's standing there weeping. And I want to read it to you. He says, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. Of course they say that. Look at what's happened. But in betrayal and in defeat, he says, Lord, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. This is not, I I want you to hear this cry. This is a broken, defeated, confused, empty father and king crying to the Lord. And the promises the Lord answers. I lie down and sleep and I wake again for one reason, because the Lord sustains me. So I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. That's not overspeak. That's the amount of people that have risen up against David. And then he says, rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And he finishes with the message I want to offer you this morning. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. I want to stir up hope in you. I want God to stir up hope in you. Yes, you're under the consequences of sin in this world. The world experiences a general curse because of our sin. We all get hurt and suffer. We betray one another. We suffer when we shouldn't. We die when we shouldn't. But Jesus died to free us from the curse of sin so that sin does not have to have the final word over us. Salvation, not defeat. Salvation belongs to our God. So I won't fear death. I won't fear humiliation. I won't fear betrayal because my name is written on his nail-pierced hands. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And if everybody mocks me, if everybody says God can't help you, 
When I want to drop my head in defeat and embarrassment and shame, teenager, listen to me. I know you have entered the post-Christian world. Most people around you will not serve the God that you serve. But who are you going to listen to? Don't let the words of a confused world be the ones that wrestle in your heart. When the many say about you, there is no help for you in God. No, God is the glory and lifter of your head. And in Christ, your sin is not the final word over you. Man, let's land in this beautiful truth. If nothing else, because of Christ, you are not your sin. What sin is speaking a label over you right now? Maybe it's this feeling of a bad dad because of some sins that you've made. Maybe teenager, you've lost your virginity or stolen from people or bullied somebody or you're addicted to something. Adults, maybe you've gotten divorced. You've lost your temper and hurt somebody. You've stolen from people, stolen from your job. You're addicted to porn, addicted to alcohol, addicted to something else. You're a perpetual liar, manipulator, whatever it is. I want you walking away today. Look, I want you to walk away today seeing Jesus coming towards you and coming for you. Saying all those things, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. I know too many guys and girls when they're growing up, maybe it's in high school, let one sin become their identity and then they play it up on the outside, but they're crushed on the inside. You are not your sin. God loves you. He's got a better name for you. You are son or daughter of the beloved king of the universe. The adulterer, the thief, the liar, the addict, those labels were nailed to the cross with Jesus. He held them in his hands as the nails drove through them and those labels went into the grave with him. But listen to me, they stayed in the grave, but he did not. And right now you can be free of that baggage. Give it to Christ and walk out of here today free under the freedom of the love of Jesus for you. That's how generational sin is broken. It's in the power of the gospel. Some of you, your parents were abusers. You're headed there. Your parents were divorced. You're headed there. You were treated bad. You're starting to treat others bad. You are Absalom trying to deal with your own pain by passing it along to others. You don't have to be Absalom. The gospel says that's not you. Your true father, it's your heavenly father. You don't have to repeat your earthly father's sin. And instead you can be a conduit for your heavenly father's blessing. I'm telling you, he can make you new. It's the truth of scripture and I've seen it. Parents, the most powerful thing you can do when you sin is own it with your kids. Ask forgiveness, show them the goodness of God's grace to you. I promise the legacy of grace and forgiveness they see in you will go with them all the days of their lives. Y'all sin has real and devastating consequences, but there is hope in Jesus. So what do we do with this? Some of you just need to simply lay your sin down at the foot of the cross and receive forgiveness. You've never done it, but this is what the Lord was orchestrating in your life to bring you here today to do that. Stop waiting, repent and believe. Maybe you need to take a label that your sin or the sin of others has placed on you. And in your heart, you need to put it at the cross. You need to walk away with the label son or daughter. Some of you have a relationship with a parent that's broken. You need to go speak, forget, go seek forgiveness because you found forgiveness. Maybe your parent's not here anymore. You take that to God, your heavenly father. There are still consequences of your sin. It's almost hard to believe though. God in his kindness will even weave redemption into those consequences 
if you will yield them to him. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. Scripture blows my mind when it says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work within us. And if he can bring a dead man back to life, then there is hope if you have the spirit of God in you. He can restore all things. Well, how is God calling you to respond? Let's take a minute and let's respond together in prayer. If you would, all three of our campuses, if you get into a posture of prayer, let me just walk you through a moment to respond to the Lord and what you've heard from his word. You just bow your head. This is uncomfortable for you. You can bow your head. You don't have to participate, but I would challenge you, encourage you to. What do you got to lose? Maybe God is up to something and you might just be trying to put up a wall against him. What do you got to lose right now? Here's how you can pray. Maybe there's a, a label and maybe it's one that's been passed down from generations. Maybe you're scared of it. Maybe you've been leaning into it. I want you to put it at the cross, just in your mind's eye, put it at the cross. See your savior dying for you, giving you a name, son or daughter. Then see your savior move from the cross to the empty tomb. See him embracing you, son or daughter. That's your name now, son or daughter of Christ. If you're not a Christian, I invite you to just receive forgiveness for your sin. I imagine there's some that are going, if you only knew though, man, my sin has, like I've done some things that have hurt some people, I know. And I may not know the specifics, but God does. He sees you. He has seen all of it and he loves you. Even still. Will you receive the Father's love says, I sent my son to pay for your sin. Will you receive that forgiveness, that payment? Say, God, I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe it. I received that forgiveness. I believe he rose again. And my old sin is still in the grave, but I have new life in him. I receive it. You tell him, thank you, God, for saving me. Maybe you just need to pray for somebody. God's put a, a person on your heart that needs the hope of Christ. Pray for him. God is moving. So I've been trying to tell you this whole time, God is moving among us still. He got out of the grave. He is still alive. He's still working. God, we thank you that you came into danger for us. You conquered sin and you forgave our sin even as we rebelled against you. Thank you for the better story. Thank you for the hope we have in Christ. We worship you. We praise you in Christ's holy name. Amen.